0: Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, Ministries.org or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Let's see what we can do for you spiritually here tonight. Week 2, Ecclesiology. Before we get started, let's talk to God for just a moment. Pray with me, please. Please. God, thank you very much for the opportunity that we have to come together in a place like this with uh, all the tools and resources that we need to be able to study the truth that you have provided to us. God, we thank you so much for your written word, living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. This word that was proclaimed, Peter said, it's been implanted in us, it causes us to be born again. We should crave it like a baby craves milk. We should have a thirst for it that causes us, as the writer of Hebrews says, to grow up, to be able to become teachers, to pass on to others the things that are helpful, the things that edify, the things that straighten out our thinking, because I know, God, as you've said in your word, our lives are determined by our thought process, and as we think, it steers our actions, our words, the patterns of our lives. So, God, we want to think biblical thoughts after you as you've revealed them to us in your word. Give us attentiveness, give us enthusiasm to receive the word tonight as we discuss it, as we think carefully about your church. God, give us a productive time, I pray, that we would see as a great investment in our spiritual growth. In Jesus' name, amen. And with that in mind, it is a topic that may seem somewhat academic to talk about the church, but think about how everyone has an opinion about the church, right? Right? not just Christians, non-Christians, everyone's got something to say about the church. And what we want to do is be able to paint a real clear picture in our minds in the totality of what the Bible says about the church, that we know what it is, what it's supposed to be. Then we can measure our church against that template. We can look at the world and see what the church ought to be. And uh, we don't have to just create on our own. We don't have to imagine what it ought to be. And we should be much more biblical even about our criticism and our concerns and prayers for the church. So we've kind of split this up. I don't know how many of you are watching the detailed list on the Internet, but really two weeks just to try and set a framework for, for the church at large in, the, in theory and in definition before we ever get to the practicalities of it. So we need to spend a little bit more time on the universal church tonight before we leave that top topic. So let's, uh, let's do that with some distinctions here, making some distinctions uh, and since I know you're hungry for a chart as simple as this is, here comes a chart for you. Just to kind of sum up where we left, and we kind of quickly fired off a few things last uh, Thursday, but we want to kind of make some things clear, and I want to put words out there that you run into and that you hear uh, and that are often twisted and distorted, but let's, let's try and understand them uh, just by way of contrast. Sometimes the universal church is called the invisible church, uh, the invisible church as opposed to obviously the visible church. Uh, we can see the church, we can see the local church, we can see the gathered church, we can even see a set of churches, but when we refer to, even in theological writings, the invisible church, what we're talking about there is that that, that scope, that breadth that we talked about last week, uh, the church universal, the church that does not meet, the church that does not have the practice of ordinances, the church that is not led by by pastors. And remember, we did mention this, but let's just at least, at least get it down, it, it includes all Christians since the New Testament times, and all the way to the rapture, at least as I define the church. So that's, that's 2,000 years plus of, of, of members in this thing. Uh, every genuine Christian is a part of the uh, universal church. Now compare that to where we're at here, that we, uh, we, we simply deal with a set of Christians, a current set of Christians. Sometimes that's contrasted just by way of, uh, we've got dead people uh, in the universal church, uh, and if you die in this church, uh, you're done. <laughs> uh, you're not a part of it anymore. Uh, we bury you, and you're taken off the rolls. Uh, so, uh, church is only the visible church. The local church is only consisting of those that are living and uh, attending and participating in that church. Now, if you think about that, all Christians since the New Testament times, all we're really talking about here is real Christians. The only people a part of the universal church are genuine, bona fide, regenerate, spirit indwelt. Believers and followers of Christ, and if you think about the visible church, even people that we think are, you know, bona fide believers, the Bible's real clear. The weed and the tares grow up together in the in in the congregations of the visible church, and uh, we have a lot of phonies, just like the writer of Hebrews says. You got a lot of people there that look like they're Christians. Uh, but as Christ said in his parables, it, the time will tell. And uh, sometimes the cost of Christianity, as he said in the parable of the soils, uh, will, will start to bring some persecution and difficulty, and those folks will, will fall away. The apostates, the, the people that uh, look genuine for a while but are not. Uh, so in that regard, the universal church is great in that only real t- Christians are a part of it. Uh, the, the real local church, the one we have to deal with, has both real and what I like to call phony Christians. We don't know who those are until after they reveal themselves. Sometimes it's helpful. Obviously, the Universal Church is one church. The local church is many outposts. I like to use that word, though we will speak in terms of the local church and sometimes even adopt the wording of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church of Christ. Uh, clearly, the broader body of Christ, the broader bride of Christ, the church, capital C, sometimes we call it, is much broader than this, and we are just one outpost, one expression of the church of Jesus Christ, the one in which, as we said, with the word ecclesia some 114 times in the New Testament, most of those references, 90 plus, are dealing with the local church, the visible church, the church that's full of of Christians in a particular setting, in a particular geography, under a set of leaders that include both real and phony Christians, and and that's the focus that we're going to spend most of our time on starting next week. But we need to spend a little bit more time uh, discussing the universal church. And one thing, and, and it just needs to be said because it's so confusing in, the way, in its usage, both historically uh, and currently, is the word Catholic. Let's talk about that, Catholic church. Um, and, and maybe you've encountered this, and it's been a, bit, been a bit confusing, but we define that word based on our common experience here in time and space, when in reality, in history, it means something else. And just for the sake of the word, coming from Greek, like a lot of words do, uh, kata is a preposition. Uh, all the Gospels, by the way, start with that. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the titles on the old uh, texts that we find, the, the papyrus and, and, and documents of the New Testament, uh, kata, uh, Johann kata, mathon, kata. Uh, that means according to or relating to or, or having an association with Matthew or John or Luke or or whoever it might be. Um, uh, Halu is the the Greek word for for the totality of it, the whole of it. So if you're going to define this word, it's just the compound of it. Literally, we're talking about something that concerns the whole. I mean, that's all the word Catholic means. It means something that is relating to the whole of it. Another way to put it is this, that the word in and of itself, and from its earliest usage, simply meant it was a synonym for the universal church. When you talk about the, the invisible church, when you talk about the totality of the church, when you talk about every Christian that was a part of the bride of Christ, you use the word the Catholic church, which simply just meant the, the, the whole of it, the, the, whole, the entire thing, all of it. And that's why perhaps when you go back in time and you see things like the Apostles' Creed and you read through that, which wasn't really the Apostles' Creed, but was a codification of the Apostles' teaching. They didn't write it, but it came a couple uh, centuries after that, at least as it came down to us, uh, it said things like this. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the forgiveness of sins, and on it went. What are they saying there? They believe that God established this thing called the church. Of course, they functioned within the outposts and expressions of the church, but when they said that, it means that God set up an institution of which uh, Christians should be a part. They should be engaged in the church. The, the set-apart group, the Holy Catholic Church, had nothing to do with Rome. Uh, you know. It later did and soon did after uh, a lot of the uh, uh, extant copies of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Nicene Creed, for instance, uh, which I always love, uh, this picture of Nicaea which, uh, of course, is in 325 A.D. This, if you remember my sermon on St. Nicholas, uh, this is St. Nicholas punching uh, Arius in the face at the Council of Nicaea, which is uh, a great thing, and it should become a standard Christmas card uh, for us. St. Nicholas, who, of course, was a 4th century pastor, uh, and, and uh, they there on the Mediterranean coast, and uh, you know we don't have a lot of information about him, but that was the character on which the modern, you know, Santa Claus figure was based on. He was at the Nicene Council in the fourth century, which was really all about clarifying the problem uh, that had been created by Arius and his followers about the deity of Christ. They were denying the deity of Christ. And so the Council of Nicaea, uh, they confronted Arius. And this is one of the famous paintings from uh, that historic event when uh, jolly old Saint Nick got mad at uh, Arius to be anachronistic. That's what happened. And, uh, Actually, one of his biographers, early biographers, said he slapped him. But the painting, I love the painting. That doesn't look like a slap to me. Uh, That's a closed fist there, baby. Uh, Arius is getting it in the side of the head. Anyway, all that background, I just thought I'd throw a graphic up of the Council of Nicaea. And, of course, I first picked all these, you know, all the the representatives of the church in the fourth century. And I thought, nah, let's go right to the drama of Nicholas punching Arius. You've heard that story before? Is that new to anybody? Please tell me. Oh, that's great. It's a good one. Now, Dayspring will never put it out as a Christmas card, and I said that one time preaching on that, and sure enough, uh, I got someone creative enough to download a picture on the internet from the internet and put it on cardstock and made their own Christmas card, and of course, sent it to me for Christmas. Um, so I have had this as a Christmas card. Uh, I don't know if they sent it to anybody else, but I loved it. It stayed up longer than any of the other Christmas cards that I received that year. But anyway, in the Nicene Creed from the 4th century, of course, they say, I believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, uh, which, again, is just a a line from the Nicene Creed, which is the affirmation, the confession of the the church. Now, unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church has hijacked that line and begin to read back into that uh, something that it did not mean when it was worded. Uh, and, and, And we'll talk about that in a minute. But when it was stated... Uh, The the idea was: we believe, you know, we believe in Christ, we believe in God, believe in the Spirit, and we believe He left this institution called the Church. If we want to talk universally about it, it is this holy Church set apart, this group of people to follow Christ. All the teaching goes on there. All that God wants to happen in the Church, and it is based on the on the foundation Ephesians two twenty of the apostles and prophets. Uh, It is the Holy Catholic Apostolic Church. And just to prove to you that this you know, it maintained itself uh, for thousands of years, uh, you know, thousands of years, Uh, hundreds and hundreds of years, over a 1,000 years after that, uh, I will use the second London Baptist Confession as an example uh, from the 17th century, 1689, uh, Baptist Confession of London, where they are still using that. Now, if anybody, if you think history here, we've already had the Reformation. Baptists are clearly Protestants. They're not about the Roman Catholic Church. They still enlist the verbiage in their confession, which says uh, they believe in and affirm the Catholic Or, they're careful to make clear, to distinguish, the universal church, which may be called invisible. It consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, who is the head, and on the confession goes. Uh, That is um, just to prove to you, when you hear it sometimes... Uh, in scholarly settings or you read it in an old commentary or you hear someone uh, even from the the, the post-Reformation age talk about the Catholic Church, uh, don't think Roman Catholic Church because that may not mean what they're talking about. As a matter of fact, a lot of them disdain the fact that the Catholic Church, uh, Roman Catholic Church, like to abscond and take that to themselves and they like to make clear that they were a part of the real Catholic Church and the real Catholic Church is the real universal Church. Uh, so even the Baptists here of the 17th century still enlisting the word uh, Catholic for universal, just to clarify. Uh, so anyway, uh, kata, uh, halu, which is the the, to the total of the church, according to or referring to the all, all of it. Uh, and we are distinguishing, of course, from the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church will use the word Catholic. And one of the reasons they enlisted the word Catholic is because they, too, believe in the Catholic Church, They just believe in the universal church with a little different uh, spin. And by that, when they talk about it, they do refer not to the invisible church. When they use the word Catholic, they're talking about the visible church. They talk often, most often, read their documents. When they're talking about the Catholic church, though at times they're looking through time, usually they're talking about, we're talking about right now, you are part of the Catholic church, the Roman Catholic church, is what we are now seeing as organized under the hierarchy, and we'll talk about this when we get to expressions of church polity, uh, organized under the authority of the Pope. Uh, The Pope, uh, which means, of course, from Latin, it means dad. Uh, And dad, of course, the Pope, uh, is the vicar or representative of Christ. So the church right now, according to Roman Catholic dogma, is that we are all, if we're part of the church, the real church, this is an expression of the real church, if indeed we're a part of the real church, but it must be under the authority of the vicar of Christ. It must be under the authority of of the bishop of Rome. Uh, That is, to them, the Catholic church, the real Catholic church, what they call the mother church, the one true church. Now, of course, after Constantine in the 4th century, more and more of the power and authority of the church got consolidated under the Roman Empire there uh, and, and, and made itself you know uh, all through. We'll talk about church history another time. But that, um, when it was threatened uh, in the most dramatic way in the, in the Reformation, uh, they doubled down after that in, in what was called the Counter-Reformation, Uh, And the big council, uh, three councils back, that they held was the Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent uh, was all about them making clear that, listen, you you can go with Martin Luther and his gang and Calvin and Zwingli and all those guys, but you're not a part of the real church because the real church has to be organized under the Pope. You have to be under the authority of who we are and who we are. Right is the one true church. We are the manifestation of God's authority on earth, and it is under the Bishop of Rome, and therefore, the right name for their church is the Roman Catholic Church. We are the universal, visible expression of God's people under the authority of Christ himself, or at least his vicar, and that is uh, the Pope. The um, Council of Trent was filled with anathemas. You know what anathema means, right? Anathema means damn you, right? You're, you're damned to hell. Uh, and a lot of things they did in the in the wake of the breakup, if you will, of the church and the, and the Reformation uh, is they anathematized people who would not recognize the authority of the Roman Catholic Church or the authority of the Pope or the authority of the bishops. You had to be... Um, Anathematized, and you were officially, you know, damned if you were not a part of the Roman Catholic Church. And to them, that didn't mean what we mean by Catholic Church, or what the Baptist Confession meant by the Catholic Church, or, or any of the other confessions and creeds that the church meant by Catholic Church. They meant you had to be a part of their church under the authority of the Mother Church of Rome, um, which, of course, they believe in their doctrine is the ultimate authority uh, for. For truth. Now, if you're a modern Catholic watcher, or you have family members that are Catholic, or you've kind of matriculated through the Catholic Church, you know that things have, have changed a bit. They, they tossed around the word heretic a lot at the Council of Trent in the wake of the, of the Reformation. Um, and, of course, anathematizing people left and right. Well, after that came Vatican I, and then m- more recently Vatican II, uh, which ended in ni- 1968, uh, and and those started to talk more about the ecumenical nature of the Catholic Church, but you need to follow this carefully. The most, the latest authoritative expression of the Catholic Roman Catholic Church is uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which came, which came out recently, right? What is that? Nineteen eighties or something like that. Um, what the Catholic Catechism of the Catholic Church the official word from Rome, continues to impress, even though they talk a lot about what they now call the separated brethren. They don't like to toss the word around heretic as much as they used to, but they talk about the separated brethren. The goal of the church with the separated brethren is to bring them back to the fold. They will discuss the possibility of salvation outside the Roman Catholic Church. But even when when Pope uh, uh, John Paul put out his encyclical in the 1990s called uh, something, something like the, the one true church. Did I write this down? The title of this. What did he call it? Um, I didn't write it down. Oh, there it is. I did. That they may all be one. That sounds pretty ecumenical, right? Uh, et unum sint. That they may all be one. Uh, they take, he takes the ideas of Vatican II, and we'll still discuss the fact that we should all be one big happy family. And more than any other, that pope sat on the stage with, you know, Orthodox priests and Billy Graham and 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 Muslim clerics, and he liked to talk about the ecumeniz- ecumenical nature of the Church. But you will still find in all of that encyclical, and even in all the writings in the uh, Catholic Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, the goal is to bring. The, the separated brethren, the lost sheep, if you will, back under the auspices of the authority of the bishop of Rome. Um, one quote from the dogmatic constitution of the church, number 20 uh, modern statements, is the bishops, for instance, under the leadership of the pope, have, have by divine institution taken the place of the apostles as the pastors, the shepherds of the church. And, and in such... Uh, whoever listens to them is listening to Christ and whoever despises them despises Christ and him who sent Christ. So you're despising God, despising Christ or despising the whole thing. If you're not under that umbrella of the, the dogma, the authority of, of the church. Uh, And all I'm saying is that's very different than what the church was saying before the consolidation of power. Uh, And it's certainly not what the reformers were saying. And it's certainly not what we're saying. We talk about the Catholic church or the universal church. Uh, So, I think for the sake of clarity, at least, it's good to uh, make sure that we can, in some way, for what it's worth, and language changes, but redeem that word just a little bit, at least in your historical reading, that we're not always talking about the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church, more on that schism another time, perhaps, but uh, for what it's worth. okay. Oh, I had one more point here, which was the 1995 encyclical, uh, the separated, still under Rome, still... You know, spiritually, mystically, somehow tied to Rome, even if there is salvation outside of the Catholic Church, as the moderns like to say. But Ratzinger, I should say, the new Pope, Benedict, he's not quite as open minded as Pope John Paul, uh, if you read any of his writings. But no time, no time, no time for that. The anathemas of the Council of Trent have never been reversed. Um, We are still heretics. I I should say this because I've talked about Catholics long enough here to offend people who are uh, pro-Catholic. So I might as well, since I'm in the hole, uh, dig around here a little while. Um, The real problem with this is, 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 is epistemology. It's knowledge, it's authority, it's truth. Where does it come from? With the statement even that I quoted here from the Dogmatic Constitution of the Church number 20, the, and which is one of several. You could read, as I was reading this afternoon, through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and the Companion to the Catholic, Catechism of the Catholic Church, and have all of the references they make to the authority of the church. All of that comes down to, see, where we get our truth from. And when you have the magisterium and the tradition of the church as it's given and interpreted by the authority of the church, as authority binding You can say that the Bible is an authority, but when those two conflict or when this authority speaks, when this authority is silent, right? you can't argue with it. I mean, I can take a Bible and as I have, I've sat down with a table full of of Catholic priests and I said, let's talk about purgatory for a while. Right? I can talk about it all I want and I can tell them it doesn't make biblical sense. I can show them the absence of it in the scripture, uh, but it doesn't matter. See, it doesn't matter if I have another authority that's going to speak to the issue of purgatory, because if they've said it, and they are the authority, and they speak as Christ, right? then, then I, I'm going to lose the argument. That's why with Catholicism, before you go debating Mary or any of these other things, or the Eucharist or whatever, it really it comes down to, and it's going to get around to this eventually, what about authority? And as they put it in the post-Reformation days and in the counter-Reformation, either, you know, either the, the church is the mother of the canon, the scriptures, Right? Or the scriptures are the mother of the church. You've got to make a decision. Protestants are saying, what we are saying, what I'm saying, you may not be a Protestant, I'm still protesting. Uh, I believe that the church, see, is under the authority of God's written revelation. Uh, That means that I believe that the scripture, the canon, is the mother of the church. I don't believe that the church is ever the the mother uh, of the canon of the scripture. And because when they say, as they do, that they are the key interpreters and you cannot certainly at Trent they said, you cannot go out Martin Luther and interpret this stuff without us. Uh, it sounds a lot like, you know, the, the Watchtower Attract Society, does it not? Who says, You can't interpret this without us. We are the we are the key to understanding it. We are the decoder ring that you got in the cornflake box to figure this out. And without it, you can't do it. You need us. We're the authority. And all we're saying is any authority the church has is derived from the revelation of God. And, and if the Bible didn't put itself up like that, I, I wouldn't... I mean, I would question my, my doctrine of Scripture. But because the Scripture puts itself up on such a high level and it's proved itself by, by the authentication of miraculous events and predictive prophecy, uh, I'm stuck saying this is in charge. And if this is going to disagree with your church leader, I'm going to have to choose this. Uh, and, and, of course, Catholicism as a system, Roman Catholicism, is based on the assumption that the authority resides in the church, though they may say, and, of course, Scripture. Uh, it's hard you know—hard to have. When something has two heads, we call it a monster generally. Uh, you can't have two sources of authority. You've got to have one ultimate arbiter of truth in your church. All right, was that enough? Now, you'll call it Catholic bashing, but I'm just trying to teach here. Am I not? Uh, I, I, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I, I think I am. That'll always cause a stir. So I'll see you when I'm done here in a few minutes and we can finish the conversation. Here's another controversial topic as long as we're talking controversy. So we talk about the church universal, the invisible church. There's one more thing about the universal church we've got to deal with tonight. And that is when we talk about it as a whole, how does it compare itself to Israel? Israel we know. We read the Old Testament. we got all this Israel, 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 Israel. We don't have uh, you know, all this use of the word church, although, as I explained last time in the Septuagint, we'll have the word ecclesia show up here and there um, several times. Uh, but I guess the question is, what do we do with these two entities that clearly were dealt with differently then and now? Right? I mean, we're, there's no priesthood. There's no, there's no sacrifices. There's no tribe of Levi. There's no you know, concerns about the allotment of the land. So we, we clearly are, are different. But what is the relation of the two? And that's what we need to get to. There are four, four views, but let me give you the two primary views and two big buckets, um, which most of you already know. But if not, here we go. Let's talk about this. In one way or another, the first view is that the church has replaced Israel. Now, there's really 2 subviews in this, but basically it comes down to whether it's a new entity that has simply displaced it or whether it's a continuation of the old one, and the old one's now gone and it's irrelevant. Uh, Either way, the new one has overtaken and replaced the old one. If what we are is the universal church and an outpost of the universal church is nothing other than the people of God as described in the Old Testament, and that's all that is going to be here in the future, then that kind of unity of the people of God is something that this view proposes. The, the, the argument is Old Testament, New Testament, future people of God, it's all the church. And to talk about the church universal, you can see that if you've been sensitive to these topics as I've been defining everything, I, I, I start putting borders on this in my view, which is New te- You know, Christians uh, since the New Testament, for instance. I mean, that's even a general statement, but clearly I'm not going back you know, to, to the Garden of Eden here. Uh, but if you were going to say, oh, wait a minute, uh, if the church is nothing more than the current expression of the people of God. And the Old Testament was nothing more than the expression of the people of God. And the people of God was, you know, kind of bound up mostly in the people there in ethnic Israel... Uh, and before that, whatever, it was, you know, back before and it was, you know, in Noah's day or Melchizedek or whatever you want to say, just prior to Abraham, you, you you have the people of God. It's the people of God. Then it's the people of God in the middle of the Old Testament. It's the people of God in the intertestamental period. It's the people of God in the New Testament. It's the people of God in the future. It's all the people of God. And you can call that all, theologically, the church, the, 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 the called out, assembled people of God. Uh, and, and that is certainly a a popular uh, popular view, uh, very popular these days. Uh, and, and usually, not to get this all confusing, and I like teaching without the labels. Have you noticed that usually? Uh, but let's throw one out there because you need to know this because these words are out there as you read. Um, and most of you know this. I don't mean to talk down to you, but covenant theology. That's what we're talking about as the real primary distinctive feature of covenant theology. So a lot you can say about the nuances of covenant theology, and a lot you can do to, to subcategorize the beliefs of, of covenant theology. And you talk about why it's called covenant theology, but I'm not here to do that. I'm here to talk about the main distinction and the distinction in covenant theology, and most of what, you know, most of you have probably been exposed to is that these folks are telling you and, and, and are teaching, and very smart guys saying, listen, the church is nothing other than the modern expression of the people of God. If it's altogether new, great. It's replaced the old. If it's just a developing progression of the old, fine. It's here and that's gone. Either way, it's the church and, and Israel is bye-bye. That, you know, that, was, that was iPhone 2 you know, or whatever. We're here now and that's, that's what we have. We don't, we don't worry about the old. There's no future for the old um, covenant theology. One major plan. God is saving people, progressing through time, culminating in the future. It's all about the people of God. Now, church, let's define it. They would say it's all of that. Is it right to look in the Old Testament and talk about the church? Yeah, they, all the time. Uh, in the future, church, church, church. It's all church. Just our new nomenclature, our new verbiage for it, our new terminology for it is church. All right, second primary view, and there's others, but these are the major ones we interface with. The church is distinct from Israel. It's uh, different. It's not, it's not the same. Now, again, I guess if you're looking, at the well, aren't, aren't covenant guys are going to say it's different? Of course it's different. The, the real difference in what we mean by saying it's distinct is that God is not done with Israel yet. He will reestablish and save Israel. Israel. And when we say Israel, what we're saying is, if if we're not covenant guys, is we're saying there's there's an ethnic distinction here. We're talking about those people, as they were defined, in those literal terms, as being people from Abraham, from the seed of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, and all of those folks, that that nation, that group that was dealt with so specifically uh, and, 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 and so extravagantly in the Old Testament, that is is something that God uh, is, is not done with yet. Uh, as we read the Bible, the, the non-covenant guy says there's, there's yet a future for, 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 for Israel. Now you're saying, well, wait a minute. You tell me those covenant guys don't believe there's a future for Israel? Well, There can be a future for ethnic Israel, but it has no prophetic significance. It has no biblical significance. It has no significance at all to the text of Scripture. Of course, they're going to read the headlines and see what's going on in Israel. They know Benjamin Netanyahu. They know all the stuff going on across the border. And they say, isn't it interesting, 1947 and the UN, and they've got a land now. That's interesting, but it's not biblical is what the covenant guys are going to say. Now, some of you grew up in Calvary chapels or Baptist churches or whatever. That sounds like heresy to you, right? But that's what a, a big... Uh, segment of, of Christianity uh, is saying and has been saying, and intelligent people are teaching it and writing books about it and have for, for centuries. This distinction is often under the rubric, under the title, under the heading of dispensational theology, which is really unfortunate for a lot of reasons. Um, it's just a bad title, I think, for, for this. As a matter of fact, if I were to rewrite it, no one's asking me, uh, and I'm uh, this is off the cuff, so let's see what I come up with here. Uh, the, the covenant theology. When we talk about covenant theology, of course, coming back to, to the word, one plan, one idea, and that is to save people. And it goes through the various phases. And of course, there's distinctions. Dispensationalism is called dispensationalism because there's a sense in which God has different plans, right? Which is, And that's at least how the word came to be, which I think is an unfortunate idea because I don't believe God has had different plans. Even the covenant guys will say clearly God dealt with the Old Testament church differently than he deals with the New Testament church. That's literally what the word dispensation means. Dispensation means an economy. A way God runs it house rules there's house rules here and if you're going to be in Israel you bring a lamb to worship house rules here you're supposed to bring your pocketbook and and and, and you're supposed to give an offering here you're supposed to bring something from your flock and we we, we barbecue it and over here you put it in the offering plate and, and I mean there's some distinctions and how you deal with it you deal with a pastor here who's one among you has authority in the church but he's not from a different tribe it has nothing to do with his ethnic background in the old testament of course they did that's dispensation so everybody's a dispensationalist right in one sense every covenant guy is a dispensationalist but the dispensationalists really are distinct from the covenant guys because they believe that ethnic israel has a distinctive plan that's not done yet they believe that he god has unfinished business with ethnic israel that's really the difference Right? when you come down to it. Oh, there are other differences, and you can talk about paedo-baptism, baptizing babies, and that replaces circumcision. To me, those are such secondary issues to reading the Bible and asking ourselves the question, is the church today nothing other than the modern expression of the Israel, the Old Testament? Uh, as opposed to the non-covenant guy, or the dispensational guy, if you will, which I don't care for the title, is saying, wait a minute, there's a difference here. God was dealing with Israel here. He's dealing with the church now. He's going to finish his program with Israel in the future. That's the essence of dispensational theology. And I should say there's a lot of variations within dispensationalism. And and for some of you, this may be helpful. Um, Old line dispensationalism. And by that, I mean the Plymouth Brethren variety, the kind that grew up under, uh, you know, whatever, Lewis Berry Chafer and uh, Darby and all that. There was such a hard line distinction between Israel and the church that they saw two ideas or two programs going on two parallel tracks that really didn't merge. I'd say most dispensationalists that you interact with today don't believe that. They call the church a great parenthesis. Uh, Most dispensationalists today that you interface with, I'm thinking, like I know who you interface with, uh, they would say, no, it's not a great parenthesis. right? God has one plan, and that is to create a kingdom, and that kingdom is going to include the church and Israel, but God is not done with his plan to set up a phase of that kingdom for Israel, and he's, he's going to fulfill that in the future. The, the dispensationalism of, of our day, I say our day, I don't know who you're reading, but um, most of the guys that you're, I, I think you're probably listening to on the radio or whatever uh, would say, yeah, I believe there's a future for Israel, but I don't believe that the church is what they used to say, the heavenly people of God, and Israel is the earthly people of God. And God wants to create a heavenly people of God that will be more like, you know, I don't know, Casper the friendly ghost in heaven, and then you got the earthly people of God that are going to have whiskers and beards, they'll be on sandals with earth, so you got earthly and heavenly. That's, that's kind of old line dispensationalism that most people have abandoned, because the more you read the scriptures, you recognize, no, no, God's got a plan. God is building a kingdom. God is going to establish his leadership over the world, and I'm going to live on an earthly kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And I will live there with Israel. But there are some phases of God's dealings with Old Testament Israel he's not done with yet. And and that is the distinction. Uh, Not done with Israel yet would be a good, I don't know, name for this group, maybe. I don't know. Um, Told you I didn't prepare that part. Uh, Done with Israel and not done with Israel. There's the two groups we should have. The done with Israel group, not done with Israel group. I'll get criticism from that. Uh, Okay, here's your two primary views. With all that said, and some of you have already been thinking this, oh well, wait a minute, I, I kind of get what you're saying because I've heard you talk about the millennium. And that's the question we should ask next. How does the millennium factor into this? We've got to deal with this thing called the millennium because it's in the Bible. <laughs> um, covenant guys will say it's only in the Bible in one place. And that's in Revelation chapter 20. And they'll say that's the only place the millennium is. And of course... You know, not done with Israel yet, people say, I'm liking this title. Uh, What's the acronym? Not done with Israel yet. Does that spell anything? Try and say that. Anyway, that's not a good title. I'll work on that. The not done with Israel yet, people uh, say, no, no, no. The the millennium's in a lot of places in, in the Bible. But clearly, if you want to talk about millennium, which comes from the word, what? Thousand. That's what millennium means. Well, that's clearly... In a chapter, in Revelation chapter 20, where it's stated over and over and over again. What, six times? The word thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. So we get this thing called a thousand year period that comes right before the discussion of the eternal state, and that's something everyone has to do, deal, deal with. We have to do something with it. What is it? Okay? We, we've got to figure that out. The way guys like me, not done with Israel yet kind of people, think is that, even before I look at Rev 20, number one, there seems to be a need for a millennium. There, need, there seems to be a biblical need for it. I need a place to put something here that I've read about throughout the scripture that I haven't yet seen realized. Now, of course, the debate's always going to come down to well, you're expecting something, as we'll see in a minute, but I think maybe it's already done. Now, that's what we call a debate about how you interpret a passage, and the word we use for that is hermeneutics, right, the, uh, the, the uh, science and art of interpreting a text, and that's where a lot of this comes down to. How do we read these texts? Uh, there's some that we should read together, uh, and then there's so many of them, but let's look at one, for instance, Ezekiel 37. And, and I'll put this, this is one example of what I'll call miscellaneous land promises. And, and the question is, if we, if we look at these texts and we start to create a, uh, an expectation that we think is legitimate, it's reasonable, it's reinforced, it's, it's, it's repeated over and over again, and we start to say, well, when is that going to happen? If we can't place it in the eternal state, and we can't place it in the current state, you start to see a need for another period of time, which, of course, we'll get to Rev 20, but I'm just try- starting to say, I got a lot of passages that lead me to think, wait a minute, um, something else needed here. What did I say? Ezekiel? Ezekiel 37. Let's drop down to first, verse uh, 15. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Take a stick and write on it, for Judah and for the people of Israel associated with him. Okay, Judah, you know your geography? Where's that? Southern Israel. A lot of people in Israel associated with Judah. And take another stick and write on it, for Joseph, right? the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. You don't know your terminology yet, which I always repeat, and I don't mean to be redundant. Israel is a word that's used for the whole of the people of of God in the Old Testament in that strip of land. Up north, got Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. The northern area is called Joseph or Ephraim, or sometimes just Israel. The southern part is called Judah, right? And it's sometimes called, you know, as it is here, it is the people associated with Judah from the house of Israel. All of it can be Israel, the northern part Ephraim, Joseph, sometimes just Israel, southern part Judah. They split, you remember, after Solomon. We had three kings in the United Kingdom, right? Who was the first king? Saul. Who wanted Saul? People did, right? Not a good choice. Didn't pan out. God said, I'll pick pick the next one. He starts a dynasty. He picks David, unlikely candidate. God's man for the job. Not perfect, clearly, but the one after God's own heart, he sets up a dynasty and he says, your kids now are going to carry this line all the way, I mean, I'm filling in the prophetic blanks, to Christ. Uh, And he has a son named Solomon, right? We just read his book in Ecclesiastes in our daily Bible reading, and and he was the most prosperous king of all that. Well, he has a kid named Jeroboam. No, I'm sorry, Rehoboam. He gets in a fight with Jeroboam and splits the kingdom in half. So we got Judah down here. We got Israel, Ephraim, Joseph up here. That's very specific terminology for the people of of Israel. Take a stick, write on it, Judah, write on the other one, Ephraim or Joseph. Join them one to another into, into one stick that they may become one in your hand. Wow. Now, again, chronology is helpful here. When did that split? 10th century B.C., where are we in Ezekiel's day? Ezekiel is what we call one of the exilic prophets, right? We're, we're in the, in the uh, 6th century, 5th, 6th century BC. So we've had hundreds of years. How old is our country? 200 and some odd years, right? This is a period that's a long time, 500 years approximately. So you've got 500 years when all you've known, let's just say, is North America, South America. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Uh, now he's saying take those two divided territories and I want you to join them together. Wow, we're going we're gonna to have a reassembled Israel? Join them one to another, verse 17 to a stick, that they may become one in your hand, verse 18. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? I mean, that's amazing. What are you trying to say? They're going to be reunited? Say to them this, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him, that was 10 of the 12, and I will join it with the stick of Judah and I will make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone. They fell in 721 BC to Assyria and scattered. They had scattered. Now think about that. That was 200 years back. Now we're sitting around. Israel's in the doghouse because they were taken away by Babylon, and they're sitting there going, Well, that was like the Civil War time. Right before that, it was the, the colonial times. I mean, that was a long time ago. So you're telling me you're going you're gonna to bring them back? I will. I'll take the people from the nations from which they've gone. They've been scattered. I'll gather them from all around. I'll bring them to their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them. Think that one through. When, When was David? Before Solomon, before the kingdom split. David? What are you talking about, a resurrected David? Yeah, kind of right? The son of David, Second Samuel 7, the one he said he was going, or First Samuel 7 rather, the one he said he was going to enthrone down the, down the lineage of David, the, the king of kings. They shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my, J, my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children, their children's children shall dwell there forever. They're having children. They're having kids. Is that what you're telling me? Mm, forever And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. They're going to have David. It's not resurrected David. I guess the promised son of David, the son of David that Jesus kept saying he was the son of David, right? The one who came to fulfill the Messianic promise. I'll make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting everlasting covenant with them. Time won't invalidate it, right? That's what he's saying. Covenant with them. I will set them in the land and I will multiply them and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. That's a problem if we're looking for when that happens. You do know what happens, right, after the Babylonian captivity of 70 years. They get taken back. You remember Artaxerxes. You remember the whole story of Nehemiah and Ezra. They build a temple. They cry because the temple is nothing like the former temple. They get sidetracked, they start putting up their houses, they're paneling, they're frustrated, the prophets have to come and, and rebuke them because the temple's in disregard, uh, it doesn't work out so well, you get this revolt from the Grecian Hellenistic world, you had Antiochus Epiphanes come in and destroy everything, you had the Romans come back in and Herod build the temple back up, then you had it decimated by the Romans later on in 70 AD, it just wasn't working out so well, I don't, we don't see a lot of that going on. What the covenant guys are going to do is say, well, this is nothing other than a type, a type of what Christ would come and accomplish. And all the specifics of this have to somehow be turned into a picture of of Christ kind of ruling in the church with, you know, the people of God, which is mostly, we learn from the New Testament, the Gentiles. Matter of fact, there are some, he says, a few, a remnant, a small remnant within the church that by the time he writes Romans is, you know predominantly Gentile, and certainly Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles, sees the shift takes place in the book of Acts. The question is, how does this work out? The covenant person, the person who says, done with Israel, says, we are the fulfillment of all these things. But the specificity with which we just read that, and I could give you a list if you want to jot some down. Jeremiah 24, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 34. Um, already looked at Ezekiel 37. Joel 2, Joel chapter 3, Amos 9, Zephaniah 3. There's a list, homework list for you. Jeremiah 24, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 34, Joel 2, Joel 3, Amos 9, Zephaniah 3. Did you get all that? I said it faster the second time, which wasn't helpful for you, was it? Your neighbor got it. What's my point? That's just a short list to go through, looking at all the times God seems to get very specific about bringing the people from Israel and Judah together in the land, putting a sanctuary up, all the nations, then knowing God's with these people. When's that? And they're having children you start looking at the eternal state and the promises for the eternal state, and Christ comes in and says things like, ah, oh, they're not going to be given in marriage, they're not going to be marrying, any of that stuff. You don't have a good place for a lot of this stuff. If you're going to say, is it the church age? Mm, I'm struggling with how to interpret some of that. Is it the eternal state? Mm, I'm, try- I'm, I'm str- struggling with the details of some of that. I, I start to feel a need. And this is just a short you know, one example of saying, I, I, I could see where there might be a need for something else. Here's another one. Let's look at Isaiah 65 real quick. Isaiah 65. Do you see what I'm trying to do here with this and just show you that kind of where does this fit concern? Yeah, I see that. No, I don't see that. You're turning. You're busy. Isaiah 65. Sorry. Any of this helpful? If not, we could just have dessert or do something different. Helpful? Good. Sorry. So insecure. Isaiah 65. 17. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. Dun, dun, dun. I know that phrase. I've read Revelation 21 and 22. I've I've heard this before. The former things shall not be remembered nor come to mind. This is Isaiah 65, 17. Now I'm in verse 18. But be glad and rejoice forever in in, in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping. And the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives only a few days. Wait a minute. I've been painting a picture of the eternal state from the New Testament. There ain't going to be any infants. From what I read, it seems. Or an old man who does not fill out his days. I heard there was no death, no mourning, no crying. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. And the sinner, for the young man shall die a hundred years, uh, years old. In other words, if he dies at a hundred, man, that's really young. And the sinner, a hundred... Years old shall be accursed. In other words, wow, you got somebody dying at 100, that guy died at 100, sinner, bad situation. Wait a minute, when we're going to a funeral and it's an eight year old, we're all going, oh, is this is a terrible funeral, we're going to an eight year old's funeral. Here, if he dies at 100, it's like, oh, we're going to a 100 year old's funeral, how, how sad, how sad. Why? Because according to this text, they're going to live a lot longer than that. And the sinner's going to die at 100, we say, oh, that guy was accursed. And what's he called? A sinner. I'm already struggling with this. I thought there were no sinners in their Jerusalem. I thought in the eternal state we weren't going to have death. I thought we weren't going to have people that were going to be accursed. There, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall shall enjoy. Um, long, my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall see the offspring of the blessed blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. For, for they will call, and I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food, and they shall not hurt or destroy. in my holy mountain, says the Lord. I need a place for that. I, I'm struggling with some really mixed concepts here of a place where there is death, where there is sin, where there are people dying, where there are kids. And it's described as lions laying down with the lamb, Now, you'll see churches that are covenant churches, I'm thinking more of the high churches, that will have as a symbol in their church or their literature, maybe on their bulletin, a lion and a lamb laying down together. And they picture that symbolically as kind of what's happening when we all just get along, Rodney King, right? We all just get, sorry, right? If we can all just get along, we're fulfilling Isaiah 65. But again, we've learned to read these texts a little differently. The way we read them when. Christ or God makes promises to Abraham and it comes to to be in some very specific ways or he makes promises to Noah and it happens in some very specific ways or he makes some promises about the birth of Christ and it happens in some very specific ways. Now I'm struggling with a text like this. If I want to apply that same kind of interpretive principle to these texts, I don't know where to put them. I seem to have a need for some other epoch, some other age, some other period where we don't have resurrected bodies, where we, you know, Still have death going on, where there's still opportunity for sin and rebellion. One more. We could go on all night on these, but just one more. Zach for Zachariah 14. Zachariah 14. That one's harder to find unless you're on your iPad. Sorry. in a better mood than you, I guess. I don't know. Zachariah 14. So much happening here. Behold, the day is coming, verse 1. Coming for the Lord. When the spoil taken from you shall be divided in your midst, for I'll gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken, the houses plundered, the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Are you with me on this, Zechariah 14? Doesn't sound like heaven to me right there. Verse 3, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on the day of battle. And on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by, by very wide valleys, so that half the mountain shall be moved northward and the other half southward. I don't, I, the Lord standing on the Mount of Olives, splitting this thing in half, cataclysmic, you shall flee to the valley of my mountains. Are you, are you tracking with some of this? Um, Sherech Azel, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. And on that day there shall be no, no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. And on that day living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as it is in winter. Verse 9, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. The Lord's going to be king over the earth. Yeah, after his feet plan on the thing after the big battle, after he comes and splits the place in half, after this weird day takes place. On that day the Lord will be one and his name shall be one. The whole land shall be turned into the plain from Gibe to Rimon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and the tower of Hanel, and to the king's winepress. It shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Drop down to verse 18. I mean, we're reading and reading, but look at verse 18. If the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be plague with the Lord who afflicts the nations that do not go up and keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations who do not go up and keep the feast of booths. Since when has Egypt been punished for not going to the festivals of Israel? After there was the Mount of Olives getting stepped on by the Lord and splitting that thing in half and having a battle where Christ seems to save the people that were being raped and killed and plundered. What, when is that? Where is that? You're going to go a long way to find some really trippy explanations of how that happens if it's now, or some very strange understandings in how we're going to reconcile it with if we're going to say it's, it's in the eternal state. Matter of fact, why are there disobedient nations? Why is he punishing nations in the eternal state? Don't get that. That's why when you get enough of these texts and you go from one text to the next to the next, you start to say, wait a minute, it doesn't fit here and it doesn't seem to fit there. Maybe there's something else that should now bring us to a couple New Testament texts. There seems to be New Testament prophecies regarding ethnic Israel, that there is a future for them, that is something that takes place on earth, that is something where the king reigns over them and they all have a king and they're surrounded by nations. We don't have time. For all of this, that's why I put some references down for you under number two here. But Romans chapter 9 through chapter 11, in this long description about the Gentiles being distinguished from the Jews and the church seemed to be, you know, full of Gentiles, but the Jews who don't believe in Israel, who he's praying for, he asks in chapter 11, has God rejected his people? He says, no. He talks about a remnant within the church. And then he starts talking about the future of ethnic Israel, I preached three sermons on this, and of course it's Sunday morning, so it's a little different, but we got into it. We rolled up our sleeves. A message uh, 1030, 1031, would be worth streaming or downloading on your iPod for your workout or whatever just to get the feel of all that is there in those chapters looking forward to something that's going to happen. I threw a quick chart together because I figured I wouldn't have time to read through all this. Verse 24, for instance, of of Romans 11, talks about the natural branches being grafted back in. Apparently there is a future where Jews are back in God's favor. This is a future for those people, ethnic Israel, the descendants of Abraham yet to come. He talks about the mystery in verse 25, which was the partial hardening of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So right now, he gives us his present expectation that there's some delay in God's work for Israel because he's waiting for the times of the Gentiles to fill in the bus, if you will, to get on the ark, to get everybody to the place of repentance that he's called to to repentance. And verse 26 talks about all Israel will then be saved. As he then quotes the Old Testament text, the deliverer shall come from Zion uh, and deliver Jacob, that great, Old Testament promise that he now applies, basically saying, hey, the nation here, ethnic Israel, saved in the future. Then he makes this interesting statement about the present. Verse 28 says, they're gospel enemies. As it relates to the gospel, they're enemies of the cross. They're enemies. But they're beloved because of election. Then he says, the call and the gifts and election, those are irrevocable. And the picture here is, as a present, Israel's not saved. They reject Christ. They reject the gospel. They're not going to heaven. But one day... They will be grafted back into this olive tree, and Israel will be saved. That generation will be saved, and there's a future for them. I can't possibly prove my, my understanding of that text in the short amount of time we have, but all I can tell you is you look at New Testament discussions about Israel. Though there's two passages that make us think, now wait a minute, there seems to be a lot of blending here, and I'm, I'm, in, I'm in agreement. We are fulfilling. Many of the promises to Israel as it relates to forgiveness, as it relates to our relationship with the Holy Spirit, as it relates to the fact that Christ is our King. And in that regard, we get some of the blessings of these promises that were directed at them, but it seems like he's not done with them yet. And we have passages that keep looking forward like he's not done with them yet. Then, of course, we should spend a little time looking at the actual text, Revelation 20, the New Testament on the millennium. Let's, let's turn to that once you jot that down. Revelation chapter 20. Now, again, it may seem like a weak argument here, and I wish the Scripture were, you know, had, a, had a chart in the back somewhere, but it seems like when I read the Old Testament and I see what God says about Israel, and I see that he's got some very specific promises that don't seem to be applicable or fulfilled in our generation, in our age, and I see that in the eternal state, as Christ looks forward to what the eternal state, we're like, they don't seem to match up there. There seems to be a need for something else in between. Then I look at what he says about Israel, and he talks about the fact that that ethnic nation, that group of people, those descendants of Abraham, he has a future for these Israelites. At least that appears to be. I could look at it differently, but it seems like together those things create an expectation of something future. Then I get to the end of Revelation when the Battle of Armageddon takes place in Revelation 19, and I have all this terrible stuff happening, and Christ comes back to deliver his people, which, by the way, absent is the discussion of the church. From Revelation chapter 4 to Revelation chapter 20. I mean, we, we, they're gone here. It's, it's, it, we just now have dealt with, we've even got a discussion of 12,000 from the, every tribe of Israel. We've got 144,000 people naming and, and tracing their lineage to the tribes of Israel. We've got issues that make the whole middle of this book of Revelation look very Jewish. With no reference to the word ecclesia. We get to Rev 20. And it says in verse number 1, I understand it's all highly symbolic. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, verse 1 says. Holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain, he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. There's no confusion about who that is. And bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Okay, more on that in a minute. After that, he must be released for a little while. I saw the thrones and those seated on the thrones who had authority to judge were committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or the image and not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years and the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection and blessed is holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years has ended, then Satan's going to be released. Oh, man, I thought we were done with him. We're not going to be released from his prison. And they will come out to deceive the nations. They'll start not coming up if we're going to tie these passages together to the festival of booths, perhaps. And not only that, it's going to get worse. They're going to be a... They're going to be a rebellion, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea, huge rebellion. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And then the devil who deceived them was thrown to the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented there day and night forever and ever. They don't get out this time. That passage caused a lot of headaches for people throughout g- generations. Some preachers and theologians in past generations have just given up on the whole book. But if we're going to Take this book as a legitimate prophecy from John on the Isle of Patmos in 95 AD. We got to figure out what this is all about. Though it's cryptic, though it's apocalyptic, it's filled with symbolism, right? I think, at least I'm saying, I think all of this seems to fit together as a season in which God fulfills a lot of his very specific prophecies to Israel, which has been the theme from chapter. Really, if you get into the specifics of it, chapter 6 all the way to chapter 19 in Revelation, now in chapter 20, he gives them this platform, this epic, this season, this period where sin is still a reality, at least at the end. And there is people, there are people, without resurrected bodies, living, inhabiting, occupying this place. Now, with that said, I can do with this text something based on my definition of the church that's why ecclesiology and eschatology overlap so much. My view of the church is going to determine what I do with passages like this in the future. If this 1,000-year period has to be explained, I've got to figure it out. Options, my options about Rev 20 are dependent on the definition of the church. Okay. Let's talk about this. i got some weird rectangles and triangles there for you. Arrow number one. Okay. The second coming of Christ, that becomes the defining event that then defines these views of the millennium, okay? The second coming, view number one, is it comes after the millennial period, okay? In other words, chapter 19 really doesn't come before chapter 20. In their timeline, it comes after. There's a recapitulation. There's a retelling of the story. There's something else going on here. But we call this uh, ah-millennialism. And you can see why most covenant guys... Are, are, are led to this because clearly if we are the church, then there's no need for an Israeli thousand-year period. It doesn't make sense that that would be the case. So we must here in Rev 20 just have a retelling of some kind of of, of story, a compacted retelling of the story with thousand years somehow being an important uh, mark of, of, of time and, and, and chronology here. But um, I guess what's happening is God is doing this thing about binding Satan, not deceiving the nations, this time where there is uh, you know, all this good stuff going on before this last period where it gets real bad. It uh, must be going on before the return of Christ. Ah, millennials it means ah, of course, is a negation. It means no millennium, but that's not what the ah, millennials believe. They simply believe that the second coming comes after what I call here a spiritual millennium. Here's what it looks like. Millennium, Christ spiritually reigning over the hearts of Christians in this age. You had the Old Testament age. You have the first coming of Christ, right? That took place. We celebrated at Christmas. Christ comes, does his work on the cross. He takes care of the sin problem. He's the sacrifice. Then we begin an age where the church is Israel. It's the next phase. It's replaced it, whatever you want to call it. And the millennium is now. Now, you could read Revelation 20 very literally up until about, oh, I don't know, 10th century AD. Then you had to readjust it a little bit because we kept on going. Now we've doubled it up. We're 2,000 years after the first coming of Christ. And so the millennium becomes a, a spiritual reality. You take all the promises of the Old Testament about the lion laying down with the lamb, Isaiah 65, and you say all of it's kind of going on now. Lion laying down with the lamb, that's Jew and Gentile coexisting in one church. Uh, the kind of thing where a, a person dies at 100 and they, we, we grieve it like a child. Well, that's just a, the vitality of the Christian life and the, the enduring nature of it, whatever it is. We, we somehow interpret all these things as being a now kind of deal. Christ comes back and we have eternity after that. First coming, second coming. In between those two comings, Israel is the church. We don't call it Israel anymore. We're the spiritual Israel of God. We are the church. We'll have the second coming of Christ and then we'll have eternity. No need for a tribulation, no need for a millennium, we're living in the millennium. The tribulation is going to take place, I guess, at the end when all those bad things that, that have been talked about in Matthew 24 and Revelation chapter 19 and Revelation 20, at the end of those thousand, I guess, all is the same. It's going to get bad. And I guess that's worth putting down here. Things get worse and worse as the millennium goes on. And uh, at the end, it gets so bad. Christ comes back and sets up the eternal kingdom. No death, no dying, no mourning, no pain. All the tears are wiped away. And that's the picture of all millennialism in a nutshell. Another view. Popular among other folks. And that is the second coming comes not after a spiritual millennium. It comes after the real millennium. Okay? We call this post-millennialism. The second coming, which is the second triangle, it comes after the real millennium. And by real, all I mean by that is uh, things do get real good. Satan does get bound. People are living without temptation and problems. The millennium is defined this way as Christ reigning over a world that is transformed by a victorious church. We do our job so well that we usher in the golden age, as it's called, to where it's like living in the millennium. No, I don't know. Maybe we will live for 100. Maybe the time is coming where we so do this thing and, and, and things go so well, it, we will mourn a 100-year-old like they're, like, like they're a child, right? And the sin will be so bizarre that it'll be like, wow, I can't even believe you sinned. And, well, he's accursed because sin will become less and less of a reality, Health and prosperity will continue to to improve and everything gets real good in the future. So you had the Old Testament age. That was pretty humdrum. First coming of Christ. Church is Israel, of course, and the millennium is arriving as we do our work. And when we finish, after a thousand years, some believe it's a literal thousand years. Others believe it's just a symbolic thousand years. But after a period of time when we enjoy the millennial kingdom... Then Christ comes back a second time and says, Ah, you thought that was good. Let's give you resurrected bodies. Let's make sure there's no sin at all, no crying, no mourning, no tears. We enter the eternal state. Now, if even in my description of that you started to say, I know some people that preach like that. They're probably not the people you read their books, but you've seen them as you flip channels. (laughs) Um, A lot of the prosperity guys are post-millennial, and it makes sense, right? Aren't they promising that kind of thing? And, and that is, some of them are intelligently post-millennial and some don't know what they believe, but they are, you know, a lot of folks believing that we are ushering in this ideal life and it will make life better and better. By the time we get the iPhone 25, people are going to be living to be a thousand. It's going to be awesome. And the church will be responsible for it, which by the way, underneath this, it'd be good to contrast this with all millennialism in life, in, in this period of time where Israel is the church, things only get better and better. Ah, mill guys believe it's getting worse and worse. Post-mill guys believe it's getting better and better. Now, I don't know what you think, but I'll leave that to you. Are you better off now, four years later? I mean, I don't know. This is, <laughs> I guess the question should be, are we better off now, a thousand years later? That's the question. And, and where are we heading? Sorry. I brought, brought you back to reality with that one ill-timed line. I'm so sorry. Now, lastly, of course, there's another view, uh, where the second coming comes before the millennium. We call that pre-millennialism. Pre, before, coming before. We define the millennium this way. Christ is reigning over the kingdom of Israel, fulfilling Old Testament promises. If you happen to die before this happens, you get to reign with Christ in a resurrected body. But the focus is the fulfillment of a thousand years with earthly people actually subject to death and rebellion being a reality, particularly at the end, and God having to judge the nations and save the Israel at the very end, as it says, Gog and may God gather together for battle. For battle. Okay? This is pre-millennialism. The Old Testament age is what it was. Christ comes first. We then experience the church age, which if I would have been complete, I guess underneath that we would say pre believe things get worse and worse. during the church age. And that's where we take those texts where we say, for instance, when Paul says to Timothy in the last days, terrible times will come, things will go, go from bad to worse, people will be lovers of themselves. All that stuff continues on in the church age. But then Christ comes back, second coming, and he sets up the millennial kingdom. And the millennial kingdom, he turns his attention, his attention to the unfinished business with ethnic Israel. And he fulfills all those promises from, from Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 37, Isaiah 65, you know, Joel 2, Joel 3, Zechariah 14. And all of that comes into a real literal fulfillment in this thousand-year period, which now we take Rev 20 and we say, I guess that's what's going on there. In that thousand years that it repeats six times is a thousand years long. And then there's the great white throne we read about, where we almost got to, where he brings up all the people in the second resurrection and he judges them. And when he judges them, then he's done with all the dead. Everyone now from that point on is in an eternal body, whether they're in the lake of fire or whether they are in the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. We get a new, new Jerusalem and a new, new earth, not just one where Satan is bound and the eternal state is inaugurated. It's weird that we are um, living in an age where we are such a decentralized church. (laughs) You have the ability to listen to dozens of good preachers and read all kinds of books. You're in a very unique situation. And in our generation, as opposed to others where you grew up in a denominational church with one set view and all you really read and got exposed to in terms of preaching and reading was stuff that came from that one view, you now turn on the radios and probably your favorite five preachers on the radio, they're all over the map on these topics. I hope there's not any, you know, well, there may be, there are probably a couple post millennial guys, but there's a lot of Amil guys and some, uh, you know, know—pre-mill guys, some covenant people and some, you know, God's not done with Israel people yet uh... people on the list um... and and it's hard for me as a preacher in a day like that when the menu of your intake is all over the map where you respect people that don't agree with your pastor which you know probably wasn't the way it was as much you know in in you know if you lived 150 years ago i'm not i'm not bashing Uh, a lot of people love to bash i'm not over this kind of stuff i'm not willing to bash i'm willing to, to say there's a lot of difference of opinion um... I'm not the old, hardline dispensational uh, guy, and I'm not a covenant guy. I'm a pre-mill guy. I could spend time talking about my view of the, of the tribulation, but we did that in eschatology. You can listen to all that on the tapes. But um, is this the defining issue for all of Christianity? No. Is this a salvific issue? No. Can we disagree on some of this? Absolutely. Um, it does affect the way we read the Old Testament, and it does affect how we read some promises and prophecies regarding the New Testament. And, um, you know, I'm convinced and, and if you're not, that's fine. And, uh, I don't know why I'm saying all that, I guess, because I know that, uh, there's some difference of opinion and, and, and you're exposed to some, some guys that, that have differences of opinion. And I'm not telling you, you got to believe me. Uh, I know few have time to read all the best conflicting material on this, but at least you know where your pastor's coming from. Pre-mill, God's not done with Israel yet, camp. I try to read all the latest and greatest stuff and uh, still unpersuaded about, uh, still not an all-mill guy, um, still not a covenant guy, for what that's worth. Still like Mexican food, though, and (laughs) chocolate and all that stuff. All right, 804, done early, can't believe it, let's pray. God, thank you very much for our chance to think through these theological definitions of the church, important for us, I suppose, uh, so we know how to... Uh, at least how to read the text consistently. We've got to choose a pattern of um, of hermeneutics. We've got to figure out how we're going to understand these land promises in particular. And God, I do appreciate a lot of guys I love and respect who have differences of opinion on this, uh, but God, it seems to me that the call and the promises are irrevocable, and it seems to me that you've got clear plans that are yet unfulfilled for that ethnic group of people that you've set aside, you've taken out of that olive tree, you say you're going to graft them back in at some point uh, it seems to be a, a total grafting back in that the, the, the entire nation will be saved. Obviously, not everybody back in time, but that generation will be saved by and large. We look forward to that. Uh, certainly affects our views, even of Israel today and what we think of them and how we respond to them. And I pray for those that have outstanding questions about this. If they want to hear more on what my view is, at least, that they would go to those uh, sermons that were listed on the worksheet and at least hear me out on the issues of the future for Israel and how we, as I put it in that sermon title, as humble Gentiles, should be thinking about Israel now and about the future. Uh, God, I pray, but I pray, no matter what, we wouldn't get uh, sidetracked uh, with, with this so that we do not uh, put adequate effort and attention into our evangelism, our worship, our learning, our sanctification. Uh, keep first things first, but we trust you to fulfill your promises and uh, look forward, God, to seeing what you're going to do. You've already done some things that are hard to ignore that seem very clearly to be in line with what we read there in the Old Testament, even what we read tonight in Ezekiel 37. So God, keep us uh, uh, thinking clearly and never led astray or gullible, but careful to be good students of your word. Thanks for this team willing to think through this with me tonight, and I pray next week as we get into much more practical issues. Uh, about the church and how it functions that we would be challenged that we'd be encouraged that it'd be a great uh, just a strengthening of our view as to how the church should function and uh, that we'd be honest and and humble about even where we fall short here at compass and how we can strengthen our our own resolve to uh, live up to the the calling of new testament church thanks for this group god dismiss them now with your blessing and encouragement i pray in jesus name